Forge family. Last time we were together, last week, we were in 1 Timothy and we discovered Paul instructing Timothy that the first order of pastoral business in Ephesus was prayer. Now, Paul lists off four modalities of prayer, all of which please God. And they're specific requests, general prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings, all of which are to be targeted at all mankind and then specifically at kings and rulers and authorities over the empires, over Ephesus, over Asia Minor, over the known world. Okay. The eye-opener here was that Paul says that the believers in the house churches in Ephesus um, <clears throat> that are under attack are to pray for Nero, the emperor who sent the legions to bust house churches and seize Christians. Further, Paul says that God does not wish that any should perish, but all would come to repentance and a knowledge of the truth, a truth that Jesus is the risen Lord, the Messiah, the Son of the living and only God. Now here again, if God showed mercy to Saul of Tarsus, he could possibly show mercy to Nero. He could do that. <clears throat> Some of that was to get under the skin of the, of the Ephesians. You know, they were like, what? We're supposed to pray for that madman? Yes. <clears throat> Finally, Paul lays out the unique role of Jesus as the mediator between God and man and uh, thereby sweeps all other claims by high priests or of angels as being mediators between God and man off the table. So let's pray. Father, we all have a list of those in authority or influence who we perceive as deviant, as evil, as caught in deceit, as men-pleasers, etc. Uh, we need you, Holy Spirit, to come alongside us as we pray for them. You, Lord, have saved the profoundly lost and brought them into the kingdom of God. Help us as we pray, as we present our petitions and prayers, our specific requests and thanksgivings to you. Lord, invert our thinking. Humble us before you and begin to win those in darkened, lost souls. In Jesus' name, amen. So Forge Family, this is about to, to, to plunge us into a passage of Scripture that has been wrongly translated and interpreted by committees and commentators for a long, long time, both of which have chosen to read each other's commentaries and English translations instead of the Greek text, or they've ignored the Greek text. Now, I confess that when I discovered this was the case, about... 1999, I guess it was. I was mad. I was genuinely angry at, at some of my mentors uh, and other writers. And it really was the gentleness of Holy Spirit to let me, to help me let it go. To just kind of go, that's not my business. I don't, you know, they don't answer to me. They answer to you, Lord. And, uh, and turn me loose just to deal with the text. So turn with me to chapter uh, 2 of 1 Timothy, verse eight, verses 8 to 10. We're going to start there. So here... Paul is giving instructions to Timothy on how to format prayer and gatherings in the house churches, even as they are being hunted by Nero's legions. So my English translation says, quote, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, 
but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. So, problem number one. We have 5,000 copies of the whole New Testament in Greek. It's ancient documents. We have 5,000 copies. Okay? And they all are in capital letters. And there is no punctuation. And there's no chapter breaks. Problem two is that when translators bring their own firm or fiery beliefs to the business of punctuating and, and you know setting chapter breaks and things like that, they can um, bend scripture. I don't, you know, I don't think their hearts are evil, but they bring an agenda to the process. And too often, what they choose the text to say is not what was written by the authors. <clears throat> not that that was, was uh, it was inspired originally in the text by Holy Spirit, but when they get around to translating it, it gets a little sloppy sometimes. So yes, every word of scripture is inspired in the original text. Okay? But it can be made to wander by textual amendation, additions and deletions. <clears throat> here, here we are with such a run of verses found in Second Timothy, in First Timothy, excuse me, chapter two. So the controlling verb in Paul's exhortation here is quote, want, unquote. Okay? And the text I'm reading shows the addition of a second I want being placed uh, in the text to kind of smooth the reading out. But in the process, there is a separation between men and women that's created. Okay? And it's not in the Greek. Rather, I, I believe what Paul wrote was this. And so I'm going to give you my, my treatment. Quote, Therefore, I want the men in every place lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, Women, period. And I put the period there. Uh, in my mind, it's just as valid to punctuate that set of verses as I do it as, as honestly commentators and others because you know, those who study the scriptures can read it and punctuate it the way, the, way, the way they want to. Here I am. I'll stand on that. Okay? Now, in the synagogues, women were screened off to the side and told to be silent. So they did not participate at all in any kind of Jewish uh, worship time, teaching time, etc. Okay? And the early translators sort of carried that tradition over as they handled the text. The problem is that Paul says in Galatians, there's no Jew or Greek, no male or female, no slave or free in the kingdom of God. So he just erases all that, all that male-female you know, you can't do that. You must do, sit here. You be quiet, etc. He just does that. Okay? The problem is the translators went right around the text of Scripture to imprint an ungodly view of women in the text and in the churches. Now, prayer is to be offered up with hands that have not been used in sinful activity. That's, that's a given. Holy hands. All right? So you don't come in to lead and work, you know, to worship, male or female, in your hands like you just finished slapping your daughter, whatever it was, you know, just in a fit of rage, or you just don't do that. So that, that stuff, it won't fly, it's the, and, and that under, underlying emotions have been sort of forbidden in the church of Ephesus, like just deal with your stuff before you come in the door. <clears throat> so prayers to be offered, again, with holy hands, and further, without any underlying simmering anger at a brother, at a sister, 
at an opposer out there in the market or the wicked Nero. Lastly, the, the word dissension speaks of disputes, wrangling, grumpiness, uh, internal, external stuff, and any planned ungodly backlash at others. For example, from the earliest commentators, the rabbis, okay, who interpreted the writings of the Old Testament, women were treated as the root cause for sin coming into the world. No, that's not true. <laughs> uh, but they were often spoken of as cursed. Women were as spoken of as cursed, and as such not allowed to speak or teach or lead or anything. The truth is, Adam was cursed in the fall, and Satan was cursed in the fall, but Eve was not. Now, her pain in childbearing would be magnified, and that's no small thing, guys. Okay, But, okay, she was not cursed. Instead, her seed would ultimately yield the Messiah. The role of women in the ancient world was indeed suppressed, gravely limited, and applied with a false interpretation of Scripture. The angel Gabriel spoke to Mary and spoke of her as as, um, um, the most blessed of women, for she was to be the mother of the Messiah. Now, Mary birthed Jesus, raised him in a godly way. Women followed Jesus and his disciples and ministered financially to a bunch of their needs. <clears throat> Women stood at the cross. Men left. Women stood at the cross while Jesus was dying. And they were the first ones to come to the empty grave. And Mary of Magdala was the first one to have conversation with the risen Jesus. All that is a sharp break from traditional roles in Judaism. Nevertheless, Rabbi said that to teach a woman the law was to throw pearls in front of pigs. Here, I believe that this text rightly says that both men and women are to pray. To contrast men in prayer to women who dressed modestly is ridiculous. Rather, first they are to pray. Then the I want verb in verse 8 applies to the instructions to women in the following two verses. Okay? And and, um, Paul is not going to be a fashion consultant to the Ephesian churches. Just not going to happen. And he's not saying, look, all the skirts have to reach the ankles and all the blouses have to go to the neckline and, um, and, you know, no no makeup, no perfume, no no treatment of your hair. No, that's not what he intends, not what he says. It's not there. Paul is being pastoral, fatherly, protective, deeply concerned for the women in the house churches. There are ample examples of women in risque faction all over Ephesus. And Paul wants his sisters in the Lord to choose to stay below the radar in the potentially lethal atmosphere that's in Ephesus at that time. Now, he urges modest clothing and what I would describe as discreet wear. Okay? All over Ephesus were female... There was a female couture that um, we would label as slutwear today. One of my mentors called it the gownless evening strap. (laughs) Paul is saying to the sisters in the house churches, keep your heads down. Dress modestly. And the the word he uses for that is the descriptive word catastole, 
which was a neck line to the ankles, belted, working woman's dress all over Asia, Asia Minor. And um, granted, it covered a lot of skin, but uh, it was common in the streets. You know, it would it, you'd be hard, you know, you would have looked like 20 or 30 other women at any given time in the, in the, in the marketplace. <clears throat> Um, and it wasn't distinctly worn by women of the lower class. It was just a, you know, if you're going to go to the market, you dress like you're going to work. The wealthy women in the church were the ones who would have been choosing to arrange their hair in stunning displays. Braids with pearls, with gold, with, you know, just lots of bling. And uh, at the time, um, there was a Roman bride that was noted in history Julia, I liked your braids yesterday. Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> there was a Roman bride who blinged out her wedding gown with um, emeralds and pearls, and it would have been worth $10 million today. Okay? So there was that sort of, I'm going to flash out there in the marketplace. Uh, with the rest of the body covered discreetly, the adorned hairstyles were the last element of flash that those wealthy sisters in the churches in Ephesus had access to. And, and Paul is just saying, uh, please stop that practice because you're drawing attention to yourself. And when you draw attention to yourself, you can draw attention to the churches. <clears throat> in turn, he says, he desires the women in the house churches to set, uh, excuse me, to seek out good works to do in the name of Jesus, uh, as was their claim to godliness. And um, you could also say, hey guys, hey ladies, that begins at home. Do, you know, start practicing your godly works where it is easy, and then we'll go to the marketplace with it. Next, Paul has put input for women in the house churches. Uh, kind of right out on display here. He says, let a woman receive quiet instruction, quietly receive instructions with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, Paul's use of a woman, if you will, is not directed to just single woman. It includes all, all women, married, single, etc. Okay? They are to learn all they can from scripture and from godly examples presented in the fellowships. And they're to do it quietly. Now, in the lethal atmosphere aimed at the house churches, disputations, arguments, squabbles, raised voices with the mouths of women uh, would not be appropriate and could be spread abroad so that the security of the house churches would be compromised. Now, first words here are sit quietly and learn all you can. The second word here is troubling and has often been lifted out of context. Rather than choose how much damage has been done silencing women in the churches, here I choose to just let the text speak. The Greek says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. But it is in the present tense. So it reads like this. I do not allow a woman to teach and exercise authority over a man at this time. Paul's not laying down dogma. He's not locking sisters into silence and, and no speaking roles in the church. He is saying, at this time, don't do it. The surrounding pagans 
would hear of the elevation of any woman to teach or to lead, and that would cause controversy, because that would never happen in their society, and it would produce undue attention on the churches. Paul is most likely intervening in any disruptive behavior rather than silencing the sisters. Now, we see later that in 1 Timothy that false teachers have taken advantage of women, and Paul's correction and gentle directions are, sisters, keep your heads down. Certainly, the New Testament has examples of women who taught men. Priscilla taught the scholarly Apollos about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Phoebe was spoken of as a great servant to the gospel from Sancreia. That's on the other end of the canal that ran through Corinth. And Junia as, is spoken of as an apostle in Rome. Now, the latter woman had her legacy hidden by a later scribal edition of a lowercase sigma in Greek, an S, on the end of Junia. So what you end up with is Junius, which is a man's name. Shame on that. Paul is not laying down a prohibition to last in perpetuity. He is teaching Timothy how to pastor from a father's heart and lead into the teeth of persecution. Verses 13 and 14 continues, For it was Adam who first was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. Paul's back reference here is Genesis 2 and 3. Okay? And the teaching that Adam was formed first on the sixth day of creation. Adam was assigned, this is the Adamic covenant, if you will. God made a deal with Adam and set him in the garden. says, keep the garden, name the animals. Adam threw himself at that, and God observed that the man, in Hebrew his name is Ish, okay, was not fully capable of doing all that God had asked. And it was then that God formed Eve out of Adam and presented her to him as an Azer, a helper of the highest order. Under the tradition of the Israelites, now the firstborn would have gotten a double blessing, so Adam has double Double blessing, double responsibility under the law of primogeniture. Now, during the temptation, Adam stood aside and watched the serpent lay out a deceitful, wicked, devious case to his wife in the eating of the forbidden fruit. And Eve and Adam would then become like God. Not only did Adam not intervene, his eyes were set on being like God. So yes, Eve was thoroughly deceived, but Adam was in outright rebellion against God on multiple counts. So in Ephesus, the house churches were experiencing the results of women being deceived by the false teachers. 20 out of 113 verses in 1 Timothy deal with problems with women, or either you know they could be in error, or they need specific encouragement and just a little correction, gentle focus in the house churches of Ephesus. Paul is not comparing Adam's sin with Eve's sin. Rather, he's saying that it must be the men in the house churches in Ephesus who take the lead at this time of great peril. Paul is set on the preservation of the churches, not on putting women in their place. Verse 15 has a gross mistranslation that has been passed on and on by way of translation committees and scholars and sects and etc. Uh, 
and they've chosen intentionally to keep women in the classic place of, quote, barefoot and pregnant, unquote. It says, quote, but women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So says the English translation that I'm using. But it's not right. It's not correct. There's a definite article that they run right over. It's the word the placed in front of childbearing in the Greek text. So this is not a sweeping, generalized bearing of children. To read it as translated, women's salvation is dependent on giving live birth. No. That's not what's said. The definite article states that women, as with men, are saved through the child-bearing, the birth of Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, born to Mary by means of Holy Spirit impregnation, who God gave to all mankind as the Redeemer of the world. Now, it is faith in Jesus Christ that saves women, not their fecundity, not their ability to bear children. Pauline's, the Pauline comment here of needing sisters to continue in faith and love and sanctity with discretion is equally true about the sanctification of men. The text is also a reminder of the promised Eve that her seed would come to the, prom- become, come to the promised one. <clears throat> Women do not carry the burden of Eve's sin any more than men. The rabbinical tradition of blaming of sin on women And the near hatred of women is exposed for what it is, a lie that will not stand in the light of Scripture. Now, there's some who would stand up right here and say, Pastor, Paul commanded women in the churches of Corinth to be silent. And that's true. He did. But he also, in the same chapter, chapter 14, he had to instruct men in the Corinthian churches to be silent twice. Okay? The churches in Corinth were in deep stress and confusion over the godly use of spiritual gifts. Paul was teaching into chaos in worship services, some, but not all of which, were, was brought about by women. In his commands are his concern for the whole church at that time. At that time. Again, Paul did not set rigid, forever rules regarding head covering, speaking out in meetings, etc., to the sisters in Corinth. What he taught was a starting place that would lead to love, peace, and sanctity in the midst of churches. Once that was present, there would be no need for crisis limitations such as he had to write to them in the jumbled state of their churches. Now, Forge family, we've never lived through persecution. Unless you haven't told me about it. Okay. Um, yes, there's many accounts of imprisonment, bloodshed, torture, martyrdom through the history of the church right up into the present whole nations today have set themselves against the message of Jesus Christ one pastor a month is martyred in Pakistan and godly women continue to be savaged for the cause of Christ now while not our personal experience those are our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering Now, Paul saw what was happening in Ephesus and labored with Timothy to prepare the house churches from the scriptures with fatherly advice and wisdom. Now, today, we are all blessed when our sisters in Forge Church speak out, share their questions, insights, and when they teach scripture, it is received. 
they model godly, feminine wisdom and practice for all of us, but especially for the rising little sisters and little brothers in our midst. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you that you inspired the truth to be written in Scripture and as Scripture. Make us alert to any false teaching and arm us with the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.